It seems like on a Sunday that we are talking about prayer that we should start that way. So let's pray. Yes, we will. God, we praise you because you are worthy. Yes, we will because you became human so that we could have a Savior. Yes, we will because you are deserving of praise. So, God, we ask that you stir in our hearts to see you as worthy of praise. God, we come this morning weary and heavy laden. God, we come before you burdened by loss. God, we come before you this morning excited about what you're doing in our lives. God, we come before you this morning just trying to get by parenting, working, doing the things that you have set before us. God, we come before you this morning ambivalent. God, we come before you this morning in need of a relationship with you regardless of whatever category we fall in. But God, we recognize in our sinfulness that we, we need you. So God, we confess our sinfulness to you this morning. We ask that you forgive us. God, that we come before you in the preaching of your word with clean hearts and an open mind. God, we ask that you move in us, that we leave this room more like you in deeper relationship with you, knowing through prayer how it is that that is possible. So we lay this all at your feet and we trust it reaches your ear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for the privilege of being here with you this morning, specifically thanks to Pastor Jared, who's over at our Crown Point campus this morning. As Parker said, my name is Stephen Ganchow, and it is with humility and uh, great honor that I serve Bethel as the pastor of counseling, which is what I spend the vast majority of my time doing. I'm always uh, privileged when I get to open up God's Word and preach on a Sunday morning. Uh, but where I spend the vast majority of my time is in the trenches of people's lives. And I think this morning as we come to the Bible, you're going to hear that from me. You're going to hear a very application-oriented bend. I want your relationship with God to mean something. I want you to see this morning that we can go to the Bible, look at it and say, there is something in here for me to believe and respond in faith by doing. So we're going to approach God's Word that way. And in doing that, we're going to continue in our Habits of Grace series. We've been doing Habits of Grace primarily because over the last 20 months or so, we've seen that we want to, as a church, move from a deep understanding of books like Romans into a very lively application of God's Word in our lives. We want the deep theology of the Bible to emanate from us, to well up within us, and then to exude from us. Every song that we sang this morning had a prayer element to them, and I hope that you sense that. A lot of this has to do with the great investment that you as the Cedar Lake campus and Pastor Jared have been making over the last 10 months now. Uh, it's important to he and I that you know he and I collaborated on this sermon quite a bit because we both know that the investment that you have made in being prayerful, relational, and missional is on your minds, that this is a part of the life of Bethel Cedar Lake. And what I want to do this morning is not undo anything that he's done. I want to come alongside everything that all of you have done to this point and complement it very well as we unpack the habit of grace and the means of grace of prayer. You've sensed this morning as well that everything has been interactive We've talked with each other a little bit, and we're going to continue that this morning. There's going to be an interactive element to our time 
together. So I hope that you are prepared to pray. And this morning, if you're not prepared to pray, part of my plan is to prepare you to have a heart that is geared toward prayer. Because honestly, prayer is a fascinating subject. It's a fascinating thing to think about. And oftentimes, I think that it's intimidating to a lot of people, and I'm not sure that we want prayer to be intimidating. In fact, I would submit to you, prayer shouldn't be intimidating. Public prayer, if you're a person that gets nervous doing public prayer, I would submit to you, I want to create a comfort zone for you this morning. If you're a person who likes to pray and is very verbose with prayer, I'd like to encourage you towards brevity this morning. Why? Because, because I think at times we really ceremonialize prayer. And I want us this morning to see it for exactly what it is. I don't want it to be intimidating. One of the reasons we're doing this series as well is because there are big intimidating parts to the Christian life at times. And if you've only been walking with the Lord for a short period of time, or maybe you're just kind of thinking about a relationship with Jesus, you're thinking about what it means to be a Christian, and you're here in an exploratory fashion this morning, what I don't want to do is overwhelm you. What I want to do is help you see God wants a relationship with you. And prayer is an intimate part of relationship with you. God, in fact, designed us for prayer. Church family, prayer is user-friendly. If you're going to write something down, write that down. Prayer is user-friendly. But if you've ever bought a new computer or you've ever bought a new device... You've got to learn how to use it before it's user-friendly. Just because it takes a minute or two to figure it out doesn't mean it's not user-friendly because that's the thing. Once you kind of figure out how it goes, you know how it goes, right? You've ever run a computer program where you were a little intimidated by it at first and it's like, oh, now I get this. This works very simply. That's kind of how prayer is. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the most basic idea. We're going to start from the rock bottom of what prayer is and build from there. Prayer is nothing more and nothing less than talking to God. That's it. It's talking to God. Too often what happens, as I said, is prayer gets ceremonialized. We think and have really been trained in many ways to think that with prayer we have to fold our hands, we have to close our eyes, we have to bow our heads and enter into a semi-trance-like state where we fight off fleeting thoughts and ask for God's help or blessing or something, right? We think, God, we need to do all of these things because this is what prayer is and this is what prayer looks like. And then too often what happens is we, we're trying to get the words right. And in the midst of trying to get the words right in the moment, what happens next is you're thinking about what you're going to say next. And as you're trying to get the words right and think about what you're going to say next, you ever fumbled over your words in prayer? And then if you've ever done that in public, you're like, well, I don't want to pray in public anymore if I'm just going to fumble over my words in prayer. That is not prayer. And we think too often times like we've got to do all these things for that to be what prayer is. But I would submit to you, prayer comes in all shapes and sizes. There is not a one-size-fits-all methodology to praying. There's not. And the Bible in no way gives us that impression. Now, here's the thing. Is folding your hands, closing your eyes, bowing your head helpful? Yeah. Yes, Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But these things do not make up prayer. They are components to help you not be distracted. You fold your hands so you don't fidget. I like to fidget. Anybody's ever sat in a meeting with me, you know I'm going to fidget with something. You close your eyes so that you're not wandering around getting distracted by things, and you bow your head for the same reason. That's one of the reasons when you're teaching your children how to pray, you kind of do this, right? But those things are not 
prayer themselves. Prayer is nothing more and nothing less than talking to God. At the end of the day, prayer is communion with God. It is relational communication. Prayer is relational because God desires a relationship with us. Let me make this point a little bit more clear. God wants a relationship with you. God wants a relationship with Lori and Matt and Anne and Stephen and Phoenix and all of you. God wants a relationship with you. Listen to how Paul writes of God and how he thinks of us. Consider Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verses 4 through 6, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Does that sound like someone that God doesn't want a relationship with? Think about this. You don't show mercy. You don't pour out grace. You don't seat someone in a royal court for no reason. God values us. He created people with purpose and intention. And we learn in just a few verses, in verses 2, 8, and 9, that we are saved by grace through faith into a relationship with God. The Christian life is all about relationship. Let me do you one better. Let me, let me punch this point just a little bit. How did God create things? I think at times we kind of think, and I, I like superheroes, some of you might know that, we kind of think that God's got to like power up a little bit and then boom, he like threw out power and created things. And that's not what happened. How did God create things? He spoke. He spoke. God created things, communicating into the nothingness and created something. So what prayer is then is a responsive communication to the creation act of God. David Mathis says this, in prayer we speak to the God who has spoken. We speak in response to the God who spoke first. When we think about speaking as a response to God, literally using words, it kind of makes our words, it kind of makes prayer mean a little bit more, doesn't it? It is literally a response to creation itself. But the point is this. The point is this. Relationship exists through communication. God spoke us into being, speaks to us through his word, and we get to speak in response to him through prayer. Prayer is among the primary means of a relationship with God. Among the primary means, there are ways that we can hear from God, but prayer is among the means we speak to him most pointedly. We express this habit of grace then in a lot of different ways. Prayer is not a one-size-fit-all thing. We know in any relationship, and I, I, do this, I talk about this a lot in counseling, communication is key. Communication is key. In many relationships, for those of you that are in a committed relationship of some kind, you know that if you don't communicate, things typically don't go well. Can we agree on that? If you don't communicate, your relationship is not super healthy. 
In fact, Jesus repeatedly emphasizes about his, about his understanding of our relationship with God the Father that prayer is a foregone conclusion. John, one of the elders, was up here a little while ago when he took us through a portion of the Lord's Prayer. Listen to what Jesus says about prayer. He says, when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites. When you pray, go to your room and shut the door. When you pray, do not reap, uh, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Pray like this. What he was saying is prayer is a foregone conclusion for a follower of Jesus. What that means is if we're going to kind of keep this within the, the realm of relational language, prayer as a relational aspect of the Christian life is a foregone conclusion. Jesus simply expects that you're going to pray. He just expects that your life will be characterized by prayer. And if that is the first time you're hearing something like that this morning, that's okay. But the good news now is you know, okay, prayer needs to be a part of my life. It's not really an optional thing. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. There's the expectation in a relationship with God that you talk to one another. Much like if you're married, there is an expectation in your marriage, or at least there should be, that you talk to one another. Prayer is nothing more and nothing less than talking to God. Now, here's the thing. We can stay in this passage. We've been there twice now. We can stay in Matthew chapter 6, which is where I was just drawing from. And it's an awesome passage. It's a great example. But I think what happens when we go to some place like Matthew chapter 6 is we get lost in the how to pray. It's so easy to error in the how. It's easy to, to get lost in the mechanics. And that's where the habit starts to break down because it becomes exactly as the word describes, mechanical. Too much emphasis inadvertently or accidentally gets put there, and I don't want to do that this morning. Furthermore, I think sometimes, given that it's Jesus that was teaching us how to pray, and Jesus is like, perfect, like, Okay, so Jesus knows how to pray. Of course Jesus knows how to pray. And it's a little intimidating because it's like, all right, so the perfect guy knows how to pray. Big surprise. I should follow the perfect guy's example. Big surprise. And, and we should. But I think at times, it's easier when we can relate to someone like us, isn't it? It's easier when we can go to the Bible and see, wow, I'm, I'm like right, I'm right there. Like this is the story of my life in many ways. So I thought then about how do we approach this together? How do we do it in a new and a fresh way? I thought a little bit about the ACTS methodology, which is adore, uh, confess, thank, and supplicate. And that might be familiar to some of you. You'll remember back in March during our week of prayer, Pastor Jared did it here and I preached at Crown Point that day, we walked through the ACTS methodology of prayer. So I didn't want to repeat myself and I didn't want to repeat us again. So I thought about approaching the Bible a little bit differently this morning. And I want to do it through the story of someone we can relate to. I want to I almost, in some senses, tell you a story this morning. Someone who had prayer thoughts and prayer needs just like us. And I'm thankful, quite frankly, that the Bible gives us men and women who just prayed. We need those examples from the Bible. But today, I want us to relate to someone that we can empathize with and who can empathize with us. Someone who had a relationship with God. Somebody that had a job and woes and joys, and concerns, and responsibilities. So if you will, I want you to open your Bibles or pay attention to the screen and go to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the front third of the Bible. So if you kind of find First and Second Chronicles, keep flipping forward. If you find Psalms first, flip backwards a little bit. 
It's kind of sandwiched between those two books. And I point that out to you because if you're going to do a chronological study of the Bible, the book of Nehemiah doesn't actually belong there. That is a sermon in and of itself. We're not talking about that today. But Nehemiah actually belongs at the very end of the Old Testament. So if you ever do a chronological study of the Bible, you're going to read like Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, boom, New Testament. That's where it kind of fits in the overall story. Why is that important? Because it tells us that the story of Nehemiah exists during the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is one of the great superpowers that existed in the Old Testament. They were the ones that overthrew Babylon. That might be a term that's familiar to you because Daniel, the book of Daniel, was during um, the reign of Babylon. Persia overthrew Babylon. They became the world superpower. And Nehemiah had a job in the Persian Empire. If you want more information about what it was kind of like during the Persian Empire, you want to read uh, the book of Esther. The book of Esther tells you a great deal about what life was like. Some of those things, though, are you, you learn that Israel had acclimated pretty well. Obviously, getting taken into captivity is a bad idea at any time for anyone. You know, it's, a, it's really bad to have the walls of your city knocked down, be taken into captivity, and then taken to another nation where you're put to some forced form of slavery. But what happened over time is it didn't actually stay that way. Israel, they kind of disseminated through the nation state of uh, Persia, and they acclimated into jobs. Many still followed the Lord, and the traditions of the old law had been passed down. Nehemiah was just one of these guys that existed in the Persian Empire after about a century or so of being there that followed the Lord, but had a job in the Persian Empire, and by and large was very content there. His job in that economy, in that culture, was he was the cupbearer to the king. What that means is he would taste the king's drinks and maybe sample some of the king's food before the king ate it. I don't know how much you know about the Persian Empire, but it was very routine that kings would kill each other because they wanted to be king. I don't recommend you do that to your supervisor. It's a bad idea. But what Nehemiah did was he would sample the food and the drink of the king, and then he would give it to him as long as he didn't die. He had a job, and that's, here's the thing, though. Nehemiah was, he, he was a, con, when the cupbearer, somebody that's going to like sample the king's food and such, he, you become a close confidant of the king. You actually find when you study history a little bit that cupbearers and folks like them that had direct access to the rulers, they became good friends. Some Bible scholars even theorized that there would be multiple cupbearers and multiple food samplers uh, and that they would have something like a little group of people that all hung out together. But the thing about Nehemiah and the cupbearer, given that they were always at risk of death, they were replaceable. So you could think of Nehemiah as something of glorified middle management. Nehemiah would never have been the king. Does that make sense? But he had a place of prominence, he had a job, he had responsibilities, and overall had what we would come to understand as a pretty good life. And yet, we know that he was a man of faith. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. So what we find when we get to Nehemiah chapter 1, which is where we're going to start, is Nehemiah had a pretty routine life, and here in Nehemiah 1, he runs into some of his countrymen. And that's where the story of Nehemiah picks up. So let's look at Nehemiah 1 together. Starting in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I, Nehemiah, was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers or countrymen, uh, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who has survived the exile is in great 
trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. So what they're talking about is the Babylonian exile. When King Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel came and brought all of Israel out of Jerusalem. It was a very, very bad day for the Jews. And what Nehemiah is learning here is that the state of Jerusalem is still very, very bad. Nehemiah was in Susa. We know that Susa would have been the winter palace of the king. So he was there in the winter palace with the king, with all of his subjects, and from that we can glean that they travel around. They don't stay in the same place. The king moves from place to place depending on the seasons. That'll be important in just a moment. And he caught wind from some of his countrymen that his home was in absolute ruin. All his people, the remaining remnant, were in disarray. And it's here that I want us to jump right into application because we learned something about Nehemiah right here. Because Nehemiah is not unlike us at all. He's catching up with some of his people. He's having a conversation with them. It's not super casual, but it's not formal. He just sees other Israelites and he's like, how's home? How are things back in Judah? How is Jerusalem? How are things going? And we find that they are not well at all. And Nehemiah here has a very distinct response. We find it in Nehemiah 4, 1.4a, and it says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. As soon as he heard what he had been told, he sat down and wept and mourned for days. He was overwhelmed by grief, overwhelmed by sadness. And actually, the story stops after verse 4, and it doesn't pick up again until chapter 2. And we find in chapter 2, when the story kind of picks up again, that it characterizes Nehemiah as having been overwhelmed by almost persistent anxiety. So here we have a guy. Here we have a guy that is grieving He's hurting, he's mourning, he's anxious. All very human responses, all things that we understand. But he also has a very Christian human response. He has a very follower of God-esque means of responding. And what he gives us here in the modern day is a very significant example to follow. Because instead of lashing out, instead of wallowing in self-pity, instead of reacting poorly, let's read the fullness of Nehemiah 1.4 and understand exactly what he did. This is what he says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response was one of prayer. He was hurting. He was in a bad place. He was burdened to do something, and he prayed. And what we know then is that Nehemiah fasted and prayed for four months. Four months. In Nehemiah 1.1, it says that the story starts in the month of Chislev. Then we jump up to chapter 2 where I said that it, there was time that had elapsed, four months that had elapsed. In chapter 2, verse 1, we actually find it's the month of Nisan now, which is kind of an easy thing to miss. When you're just kind of reading through the Bible and you're like, i got to get my three chapters in today. It's like, okay, so we were here, now we're there, and we think, what's that, maybe a couple weeks? It was four months. So for our purposes, if we were going to kind of put this in northwest Indiana time frame, we could almost imagine that this is November, December, January, winter. And now we've taken a four-month time jump at the beginning of chapter two to like April, May, maybe June, that time frame. There's a distinct change in season and a distinct change in location, which by the way, 
This is one of the reasons that we're doing the Habits of Grace series, because we want you to read the Bible and see the difference between Chislev and Nisan. What that means is we want you to know the difference between December and April. And when you have a good Bible and you spend a little bit of time and you know, oh, hey, I wonder what that means, you can jump down to the study notes and know, oh, wow, four months have gone by. That's really important. The Bible tells us four months have gone by. That's a really important thing to know. It's not like this happened the next day. A significant, like a third of a year just went by. I encourage you to read the Bible for all it's worth. But application point number one, I don't want to get too far away from this. This is the big thing I want you to take away from what happens here. Because we read that Nehemiah wept and mourned for days. We read that he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first application point is this. We can pray about the same thing repeatedly. You can repeat yourself in prayer. You don't have to like mix it up every time. It's okay to repeat yourself. And in fact, the portion of scripture that I skipped, Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11, we're going to come back to that later. It is the type of prayer that Nehemiah prayed repeatedly, if not frequently, for months. That was a variation of the prayer that he said over and over and over again. Why am I drawing this to your attention? Because frequently, both as a pastor and as a counselor, I get asked all the time, why as a follower of Christ is God not answering my prayer? I don't have any unconfessed sin. There's nothing happening behind the scenes. I have this massive need. I need a new job. I need this. There's something big happening that I need deliverance from. God is not answering me. Why? Have you ever been there? You ever wondered, why is God not answering me? And what we find here is that Nehemiah prays repeatedly, and his prayer goes unanswered for four months. Four months, he's praying a similar thing over and over and over again. What the Bible is telling us is that you can and should pray repeatedly. Church, you can and should pray repeatedly. It's okay. You do not have to try and like, mix up the words every time. You don't have to like, parse the words together just so, so that maybe God hears you this time. That is not how prayer works. And if that is you, I encourage you to free yourself from that mindset. God does not ask that of you. God just wants you to pray. But I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to punch this a little bit harder because it's important that you understand how serious the Bible actually takes this. Now we're going to go to the perfect guy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is with his disciples, right? We're mere hours before uh, the, the beginnings of Jesus going to the cross is going to take place. And in Matthew 26, 44, we learn something very important. Jesus has gone to the disciples over and over again. And this is the third time. He's gone and he's departed from them. Listen to what it says. So leaving them, the disciples again, he, Jesus, went and prayed for the third time, doing what? Saying the exact same words. Jesus himself not only repeated himself, but he said the same thing three different times. The Bible literally says, that's a direct translation, saying the same words. Friends, you do not, do not, do not have to be ashamed of repeating yourself in prayer. Because I think too often we are. You do not have to mix it up all the time, maybe in the hope that this time God will hear you. 
Jesus does not ask that of you. In fact, Jesus just prays here the same way, repeating himself three different times. The important thing is not that you pray in a magic way. The important thing is that you pray in sincerity. And if you repeating yourself is sincere, that is acceptable before God. Jesus was on the way to the cross. He was asking for deliverance from the cross. And what did he do? He repeated himself. It's okay. It is okay to repeat yourself. Take the pressure off yourself. Take the pressure off your kids. It is okay for them to say, and thank you, God, for our traveling in two weeks from now. That barely makes sense. But they're praying in sincerity. Every night when we pray with our kids, or most night when we pray with our kids, it's thank you, God, for. And it could be something three weeks from now. It's not about the fact that it's three weeks from now. It's not about the series of words. It's about the fact that they pray. And we are exampling to them, that's what a relationship with God is. God does not want your ceremony. God wants your heart. And if there is ceremony in your heart, great. But God doesn't want your ceremony. He wants your heart. I'm going to punch this a little bit harder. Because I want you to understand something really significant about this. By the way, Pastor Jared said I had 65 minutes to preach. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Actually, we did have a conversation about that, but that's not what he said. He said, don't spoil them by going only 40. (laughs) That is true, and you can quote me on that next week when he's here. But I want you to learn something really, really important here. Don't flip there, because I honestly don't have a lot of time for this. But in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, we learn something really specific. Daniel has been getting visions of the end times. He's getting visions of things that he doesn't understand. Think apocalypse. Think the book of Revelation. Those are the kinds of visions that Daniel was getting, and he did not understand them all as they were coming in. And that happens in the beginning of Daniel chapter 10. And as Daniel has done many times, if you read the book of Daniel, you see that he prayed to God. He cried out to God. He mourned on behalf of his praying going unanswered for a little while. Daniel here in Daniel chapter Chapter 10, he was praying and mourning and literally physically ill for three weeks. He says in Daniel 10, verse 2, Daniel was mourning and sick and praying for three weeks, praying for help. The, verse, uh, the, the story then picks up in Daniel 10, 10 through 14, when finally an angel comes to meet Daniel's need, to encourage him and to explain the dream to him. And a really fascinating thing happens. A really fascinating, really interesting thing. The angel explains to him that he was withheld for 21 days. The keen observer will know from Daniel 10.2 and Daniel 10.10-14 that 21 days and three weeks is the same period of time. And what, Daniel, and what the angel explains to Daniel is he was withheld by Satan for 21 days. He was prevented from coming to Daniel's aid, he says, for 21 days days. What does that mean? That means God heard his prayer. And that means the angel right away went to meet Daniel. And what the angel says is, I was prevented from coming to you for 21 days. Daniel was thinking in terms of weeks. The angel was describing this in terms of days. God heard his prayer. The angel was on the way, but he was prevented. Why do I share that with you? Because friends, sometimes when you don't have a prayer answered, it's not because your life is steeped in overwhelming sin. And it's not because you didn't say the right words. And it's not because you're not praying repeatedly. It's because the enemy is preventing your prayer from being answered. And what that means is you need to take up the full armor of God, as Paul writes about. 
It means that you need to be diligent in spiritual disciplines and habits of grace. It means that you need to maintain your faith and not doubt God because it might not be about you at all. It might be that in a spiritual realm behind the scenes, the enemy is doing things to prevent you from being helped, comforted, and taken care of. And what you need to do then is pray that God strengthens the angels who are protecting you. It's a matter of prayer. Does that make sense? All of this in God's word for us. And again, we could camp here, but there's more to be said about the life of Nehemiah. So let's go back to the life of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 2 then, we're going to re-enter his story. Remember, it's been four months since he started uh, mourning and fasting and praying repeatedly. Let's read Nehemiah 2, five through, uh, 1 through 5a. It says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine up and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sickness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, stop there. So I prayed to the God of heaven and. This is all one big event. All five verses take place in a very short span of time, seconds. This didn't happen over four months. This is happening in real time. And the application point that we need to know is this. God loves and honors spontaneous prayer. Not only can you pray repeatedly, not only can you pray using the same words and should, God honors, God loves spontaneous prayer. Here we have Nehemiah. He's literally just doing his job. For four months, he says, that he strived to carry on. For months, he kept his emotions in check. But like us, what happened? Nehemiah had a bad day. The weight of his grief shone through. His sadness, his mourning, his anxiety shone through. And the language here was very clear. He didn't jump into vomit at the mouth. He didn't start excusing himself. He didn't try and excuse himself from the presence of the king. So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king. This was an immediate, spontaneous prayer, almost as if he just prayed it in his mind. God, give me the words right now. And then he said them. That is what the language here is indicative of. Church family, this is why I opened our time together saying, we need to deceremonialize prayer just a little bit. It is perfectly acceptable throughout the course of your day, throughout the course of your life, to utter the fastest of prayers before you do a thing. And in fact, if you read the entire book of Nehemiah, you find that Nehemiah does this throughout the entirety of his life. Because here's the thing, Nehemiah stopped, he prayed, he asked the king what it is that he is desirous of, and the king gave it to him. Nehemiah got something of a promotion. He went from being the guy that brought the king's food and drink to him, sipping it, trying not to die along the way, to being the governor of Israel. You know, small job change. No big deal. He went to being the governor of Israel, and for approximately 12 years was back in Israel overseeing the rebuilding of the wall. But the thing is, this was not without adversity. The surrounding nations 
They had grown very accustomed to going in and pillaging Israel. They, had going in, they became very accustomed of going in and taking from the people who were basically destitute what, little they could, what meager little life they could squeak out. This was routine for them. And they didn't want the walls rebuilt. But we find Nehemiah went back and did that, and his life was characterized by spontaneous prayer along the way. Let me just give you a handful of examples throughout the course of these 12 years. In Nehemiah 4, so we're jumping ahead two chapters, so we know some time has passed. Israel is being taunted. Nehemiah says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them to be plundered in the land that they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And after that, Nehemiah says they kept working. Nehemiah prayed and they went right back to work. Jump ahead a little bit in verses four, uh, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. They prayed and went right back to work. They prayed, they formed a plan, let's set a guard, right back to work. Let's jump ahead to chapter 5, more time goes by. Single sentence, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah 5.19. Nehemiah 6, more time goes by. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Single sentence. Multiple times for Nehemiah 13.14, Nehemiah 13.29, Nehemiah 13.31, and other places. Nehemiah breaks into short, spontaneous prayer. And what we see is that short, spontaneous prayer, one or two sentences, was a way of life for him. Nehemiah's life was characterized by this habit of prayer. He didn't stop. Dear Heavenly Father, Can we pray that way? Should we pray that way? Yes. But in the midst of doing life, in the midst of doing his job, in the midst of just getting things done, in the midst of literally trying not to get killed rebuilding the wall, he stopped and spontaneously prayed constantly. Constantly in the quietness of his own mind, he prayed, God, just strengthen my hands. God, just give me the endurance to keep going. God, give me what I need to endure. Nehemiah's life was characterized by talking to God. Why? Because he had a relationship with God. And when you're in a relationship with God, you talk to him. Does that make sense? When you're in a relationship with God, you talk to him. I promised you this was going to be interactive. So now we're going to stop for a minute and we're going to be interactive. We're going to do some spontaneous prayer right now. I'm going to just, we're going to take 20 or 30 total seconds. That's it. Spontaneous prayer. If you want to huddle up with your family, if you want to get close, great. But there's no limits here. For the next 20 or 30 seconds, what we did earlier is we praised God. We praised Him. But what we're finding here is when Nehemiah had a big need, there was something happening in his life, he stopped and he prayed. And I cannot imagine in a very large room filled with a lot of people that there are not needs in our midst this morning. So for the next 20 or 30 seconds, it can be silent, it can be out loud, you can stand, you can sit, you can do whatever you want. But for 20 seconds, we're just going to cry out to God. Petition the Lord if you have a need. I'll start. God, give me the wisdom to finish this statistics class. I clearly need it. 
What I wanted you to see today is that prayer is accessible, which is why I did not say, in Jesus' name, amen. Because sometimes there's not time for, in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it's, God, give me the strength. God, strengthen my hands. God, help me to be wise. God, help me to know what to do. It's okay to pray repetitiously. God wants you to. It's okay to pray using the same words. Jesus himself did it. It is okay to spontaneously pray. But I know that for some of us, it is best when we have a pattern to follow. So what I want to close our time with then is a pattern of prayer. A three-step, easy pattern of prayer. I have even alliterated it for you with four, three R's. And what we're going to do is go back to Nehemiah 1. We're going to read the portion, of, the portion of Scripture that I skipped. It's Nehemiah 1, verses 5 through 11. Let's read that together. And in it is a very distinct pattern of prayer. And it says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter them. Though your outcasts will be in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now that's a big, dense prayer. And you could really thinly slice it into a lot of different prayer components. But what I want to do is give you three. Three things. Recognize, repent, request. Really simple. Recognize, repent, request. Nehemiah started by recognizing. He recognized who God was. He praised him for who he was. He recognized God's greatness. He recognized God was worthy of praise. He recognized his steadfast love and that he kept his commandments. He recognized God was faithful. The second R was he repented. He repented of his own sin. He repented of his family's sin. And then he repented of all of the people of Israel. Now that's a fascinating thing because if you know the Old Testament a little bit, who was responsible for repenting of the sins of Israel? The Levite priests. The Levites were the ones who would go into the tabernacle. The Levites were the ones who would go into the temple. Nehemiah was not a Levite priest. And yet his heart was so burdened that he repented, of the sin, he repented of the sin of a nation. That is a very pointed example for us. I would submit to you that confession, 
even private confession is among the most uncomfortable forms of prayer. Confession is one of those things that we often skip. I'll share with you personally. When I, I, my best personal times of prayer are when I'm alone in my car. I've got about a 22-minute drive between uh, my home and the office, and I often will spend the last bit of my time in the car praying. And getting to that time of confession is always like, whew, okay. But I have a thing that I always say, kind of as my, my preamble to get into the specifics, but I always will say something to the effect of, God, forgive my sin and the sin of my home. Because I'm aware, for example, that my four- and six-year-old occasionally have attitude issues. <laughs> Maybe some of you have four- and six-year-olds that have attitude issues. Maybe some of you have 36-year-olds that have attitude issues. We can talk about that later. The point is, confession is good for the soul, and Nehemiah patterns it for us. It's easy to get a little choked up when you're confessing sin. It's easy to almost be overwhelmed by it, and yet I would submit to you, the more often you do it, the more regular it becomes, the more habitual you choose to be with confession, the more your soul will not throb in pain, but rejoice with joy. When you lay your sin and the sin of your home at the feet of Jesus and trust it to Him because He says He is trustworthy. The third thing, then, that He does is request. God, please be attentive to my request. Give me mercy in the king's sight. Please return your repentant people to their home. God, you promised to return us to our home. Please return us to our home. What he really did is almost request a fourth hour. He was requesting restoration. But again, that's a sermon in and of itself. Recognize, request, repent. Not in that order. Recognize, repent, request. Three R's exampled for us by a person just like us. A real person with real concerns, real needs, and a real life. Someone who could have lost his job. Someone who could have been hurt. Someone who mourned and grieved and was anxious and chose to pray. My prayer for us this morning is that we see prayer as an accessible habit of grace. That you see that if you are one who prays repeatedly, that is okay. That if you are one who prays often using the same words, my dad literally closes prayer the exact same way. If he was here, I would say, Dad, will you close us in prayer? And at the end of whatever short prayer he prayed, he would say something to the effect of, God, keep us in good health and in safe travels. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Every single prayer, doesn't matter what it's for, those are the exact words he says every single time. I, can accept, I know when he's done praying, when he says that. And that's okay. Because we can pray repeatedly using the same words. You do not have to pray like someone else. You need to pray like you. And along the way, Nehemiah chapter 1, recognize, repent, request, it gives you a pattern to do that. So one more time, I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray. But this time, I want you to pray for yourself, by yourself, quietly. I want you to just take an opportunity to pray, and I want you to pray through these things because I'm going to guess this morning that there are some things in our life that need to be recognized. If you don't have a habit of recognizing God in prayer, you should. If there's an area of life right now that you need to repent of, now's the time because you're going to be doing it in a room filled with other people. 
If there's something you need God's help with that maybe you wouldn't say out loud, now's the time. And then in a minute or so, Parker's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a short song that's going to help us guide our minds towards a habit of prayer. So let's go before the Lord in that way together now.